under the Old Covenant ceremonial law, the sacrifices which were offered to God were to be without blemish. Which means, in a sense, as far as an animal could be perfect, they were to be perfect. And they were to be looked over and checked to see if there were any blemishes. And that statute was given to that nation by God as a way to reveal to us our need and also the remedy, remedy that God has provided for our need. The problem with us is that we are sinners. We are the very opposite of without blemish. By nature, we are full of blemishes. And there must be a perfect substitute for us. There must be a substitute who is without blemish, both in life and in death. If our sins are to be atoned for, if the sin problem is to be addressed, then we need a sacrifice that is without blemish. And the gospel narratives and the subsequent New Testament writings are clear that Jesus Christ is that substitute. He's the only remedy for the problem of the sins of men because He alone has lived without blemish. In His life, He was perfect and upright in all of His dealings, in all of His conversations, in all of His business transactions, in all of His interactions with those of the opposite sex, all of His interactions with His disciples, all of His interactions with children, all of His interactions with His enemies, He was absolutely perfect, holy. He lived the perfect life and He did that as our substitute. He did what we could not do. One of the evidences of that perfect life is found in the fact that when it came time for Him to go to the cross and suffer for our sins, His accusers had a lot of trouble coming up with any accusation that could stick against Him. They could find no fault in His life or in His teachings. And we saw that as we looked at the end of Matthew's Gospel. There's a, there's a focus in the, and, and, and throughout the other Gospels where Pilate says repeatedly, I find no fault in this man. I find no fault in this man. I find no fault in this man. I'm washing my hands. I'm done. I've done all that I could do because there is nothing in this man worth criminalizing. They couldn't find a fault, but they tried. And in, in an attempt to examine his teachings, he was interrogated, it says, about his teachings. And, and this is the way he responded in John 18, verses 20 to 21. Jesus said, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple. Where all Jews come together, I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Now, when we read that, that might not seem like much of a defense. But it was actually his greatest defense. Because for anything to be proven in court, there had to be witnesses. And our Lord could say, in effect, ask anybody you want about my teaching. Everything has been open. Everything has been public. I have given full disclosure. I've hid nothing. It's all out there for everyone to see, for everyone to examine. Gather your witnesses from all of those who have heard me and make a case. And he could say that because he knew that that case would stand. In a similar fashion, when the Apostle Paul was defending his ministry to the church in Corinth, he said... We have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. 
We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's Word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Now in that little statement, there are two ways of ministry that he's contrasting. There's ways which he calls disgraceful. He says they're underhanded. The word means hidden or cryptic. There are ways that he calls cunning. And the word there means tricky or deceptive. And in contrast to that, he says we've not ministered that way. We've not ministered in a way that was hidden, in a way that was cryptic, in a way that was tricky or deceptive. He says, my ministry was done by open statement of the truth, a full, open, clear manifestation of everything. Nothing hidden, nothing cryptic, nothing tricky, nothing deceptive. All of it was open and honest and clear. By that kind of ministry, the apostle could commend himself to the consciences of men in the sight of God. He could say to all men, in effect... Take my teaching, take my ministry, get along with yourself in your heart, in your mind, in your conscience, and see if you can find any reason to discredit me or anything that I've taught. And he could do that in the sight of God, who sees all, knows all. And he could do that because he knew the case would stand. Paul, like the Lord Jesus, carried out his ministry in full, open, observable transparency. And and that kind of openness lends itself to the best defense. They both could say, we practiced everything in a way that any person at any time, in any place, can survey all of our words. They can gather any witnesses they desire. They, (coughs) They can compare all of the evidence in a court of law. And we'll wait. And they had no fear of being charged. Christ and the Apostle could say, we know that we will be proven upright and sincere in all of our ministry. In a word, their ministries were accessible. There was nothing hidden. Everything was revealed. Nothing was cryptic. Everything was clear. Nothing was held back or reserved. Everything was fully manifested. And by that, their ministries were vindicated to the consciences of men. Now as we continue to unpack these closing remarks in Revelation chapter 22, we're coming to the third way in which the Word of God is sealed to our consciences. And it's just that. The fact that it is accessible. The revelation of Jesus Christ and all of Scripture is ratified and sealed to the consciences of men by its accessibility. If something is accessible, that means it's able to be accessed. You can get to it. You can find it. It's open. It's easily observed. In in a sense, we might say it's vulnerable to any passerby. Anybody who comes by can take it in their hands. It's not to be tucked away in a corner. It's not hidden from sight. It's not obscured. It's accessible. And this is true of God's Word. God's Word is accessible. It's open to all men. Easily observed, easily analyzed by anybody. It's not tucked away in a corner. It's not hidden. It's not obscured. You don't need a secret knowledge to read it. You don't have to learn a special language to read it. It's not full of codes and hidden messages that only a select few men can can, uh, understand it with. Anyone 
at any point in history, since the completion of the canon, in any place where a Bible can be found in their language, can open it up and see what God has said. Now, if we said, well, here's what Christians believe, and, and I think you should believe it, but I'm just gonna have, you're just going to have to take my word for it, well, that wouldn't, that wouldn't lend itself to very much of a vindication. If we said, well, there are really only a, a very small number of men who know what the, the Scriptures actually say and what's contained in, in them, and we, we just take their word for it. Well, that, that also would not make a very good case for Bible-believing. But God's Word's not that way. God has nothing to hide. We as God's people have nothing to cover up. The Word of God is accessible to anyone. It's available for testing. It's ready to be proved by anyone. Not that we would stand in judges over it, but that if we take it in our hands, it will prove itself to us. We read in Scripture, Psalm 12 and verse 6, "...the words of the Lord are pure words." like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. They've been refined, purified, put through the fire. God's words have been proven time and time again, down through the ages, and have always stood the test. And we see that here in the close of the Revelation in three ways. First, it's immediate application. Secondly, it's open publication, and thirdly, it's universal invitation. Again, all of those, these points simply to prove that the Word of God is accessible, and that accessibility lends itself to vindicate it in our consciences. So first, it's immediate application, and what I mean by that is God's Word is immediately or presently, right now, relevantly applicable to all men. Anybody who wants to can pick up a Bible, can read it, and see that it describes Him exactly where He is and the world around Him. It applies itself to Him. Now somebody might say, well, that sounds sort of subjective. And, And the fact of the matter is, it is. It's actually universally subjective. Every individual person can come to this book and find it to be immediately applicable to them. That that doesn't discredit the Word of God. That's another evidence of its divine origin, that it comes from the God who reads the hearts and the minds of every human being, who knows all things. Now in verse 6 that we read, I'll read it again. He said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent His angel to show His servants what must soon take place. In other words, the the events that are recorded in this book were soon to be taking place. The original audience could look up from their reading and see its events unfolding. Verse 10, he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. It doesn't say it's far away. It says it's near. So the message that was being conveyed was a message of immediate relevance. No one had to sit and wonder if they would ever see the day when these things would become applicable before their eyes. The revelation opened up with this same truth. Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave Him to show His servants the things that must soon take place. 
And then in verse 19 of chapter 1, Write therefore the things that you have seen, the things that are, and those that are to take place after this. Now if John were writing about events that are still yet to take place, now 1900 years later, we might not have to say, well, a future generation will be able to open this book and they'll be able to see how it really makes sense. How it all comes together. If John were writing about events which concluded in the first century, we might say, well, that generation that lived then, they were able to confirm its message and we just have to take their word for it. But since, as we've seen throughout this epistle, John is describing things relevant to those seven churches and to all churches throughout the church age, then every generation has the opportunity to read the revelation of Jesus Christ, then to look at their world and see that it is immediately applicable. It's not a fantasy. It's not a fairy tale. It describes us in our world in every generation. Again, this, this requires a, a self-honesty. We have to be honest with ourselves and say, yeah, that's, that's, that's us. Those are our temptations. Those are our, those are our afflictions. That's our world. We have to be honest. But it's relevant. Everyone can see that. It's, it's self-witnessing in our own hearts, in our own consciences. The doctrine and practical difficulties in those seven churches... We saw those are struggles for every church. We all face them. The blessings and the promises that were given are true for every church and every generation. We read of the attacks of evil men from within the church and from without of the church. Those are threats in every generation. The fact that Satan will use human powers and governments and seduction to draw men away from Christ. We can see that in every generation. We don't have to say, well, that was pretty relevant back then. And, and here's a history book to prove that it was relevant back then. We don't have to say, well, it'll be relevant someday after events A, B, and C on the prophecy timeline are fulfilled. We can say, look what it says. Read the warnings. Read the threats. Read the promises. Now look at yourself in the mirror. Look at your heart. Look at your own church. Look at your own society. Can you not see how this is describing your world? It's immediately applicable. The same thing is true for all of Scripture. When we read the story of Adam and Eve attempting to cover up their nakedness with fig leaves, do you not recognize in your own self the tendency when you have sin to sort of try to cover it up by doing a few extra good things and thinking, well, I can fix that. I sinned here, but I'll just make it up here. Self-righteousness. When you read of Abram lying about Sarai's identity to protect himself, don't you realize that same tendency in yourself that, that sometimes you have this, this leaning to stop believing the Word of God and take matters into your own hands when it looks like it might become dangerous. When you read about David's sin with Bathsheba, don't you recognize that pattern that when you're not where you should be doing what you're supposed to be doing, that whenever another temptation comes in, it's almost impossible to mortify the sin of that moment and turn away because you've already taken three steps into sin? Men, have you ever noticed how difficult it is when the first glance has been too long? That then the second glance is 
nearly impossible to avoid. That was what David did. It's describing you. This is your problem. It's not, again, some disconnected fairy tale. So we identify with Job, who had to make a covenant with his eyes. Now, men who would disregard the Scriptures, they would say, well, Job is just silly. Or dishonest men. Well, Job was just silly. Who needs to go through all that trouble? But an honest man will admit that even a covenant with his eyes has been broken more times than he wants to admit. When Peter warns the women not to try to win their husbands with their mouths, but with their godliness, is there any honest woman who says, I have no idea what he's talking about. I've never tried to win or manipulate my husband with my words. When Paul tells Timothy to tell the young widows to get married, to have children, to manage your household, avoid being a busybody. Ladies, do you not see how applicable that is? You ever find yourself seemingly doing so much and yet still not actually accomplishing the tasks that have been set before you in God's Word? And some men are the same way. You're wore out, you work yourself to death, you burn every bit of gas that you have, and still you're not even fulfilling the most basic duties of a husband and a father in the home. That's called being a busybody. I'm busy about so much except the very things that God has given me to do on my doorstep. You see, the Word of God lays us open. We're, 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 we're bare before Him. When David says that his soul longs after God like a deer pants for the water, can you not sympathize with that? If you're a Christian and you're honest, you know that when there is a felt distance between yourself and your Lord, for whatever reason, it's like a knife in your heart. It hurts. Nothing satisfies. You just want to draw near to God and for God to draw near to you. And you recognize nothing satisfies but that. That's what he was saying. When the Apostle Paul calls himself the chief of sinners, a scoffer might read that and say, well, that's just false humility. But a Christian reads that and says, I know exactly what he means. How often does God show us the true nature of our hearts? How often are we made aware of how little progress that we've made in holiness? How often are we shocked at the wickedness that still wells up in our hearts? And we can say, Paul thought he was the chief of sinners. I'm the chief. We recognize that's not false humility. When Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray each to our own way, do we not see that everywhere we go, that all men are doing whatever they can to get away from God? Everything running in their own direction? You see, the Bible is a living book given to us by a living God and applied relevantly by a living Spirit. And so when we read it, we need to avoid reading it in some disconnected way. Like I'm going to read a story about some other people. Now that is true. But we need to read not ignoring the context and not ignoring its original meanings. But we need to read it taking note of how the Holy Spirit has inspired writings that are so personal in their original authorship and yet still after the centuries so broadly personal and probing that the only explanation is this is the Word of God. And again that points us back to that original source. It's the Word of God. Only God can bring this kind of testimony to every man in every generation from one collection of writings. It's His Word. He applies it. The Word of God is living and active. 
sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. We can say to anyone, if you'll open this book, and if you'll be honest, you'll see that there is a divine omniscience in its writings that will open you up and lay you bare before God. In your own heart, and your own conscience will bear witness against you. The Bible is vindicated to the consciences of men by its immediate application. Secondly, we see this epistle is ratified and vindicated by its open publication. While some of its contents might seem mysterious, nothing in this book is hidden from any curious reader. You, you, you give enough time to it and it opens itself up. You'll see. In verse 10 we read, He said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Now that's meant to make a connection in our minds between the book of the Revelation and the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, we read, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. The prophecies that were given to Daniel were the Old Testament equivalent to the Revelation. Many of them, if not most of them, addressing the very same things. The problem was, in Daniel's day, they were not yet to be fulfilled. They were spoken they were true, forward-looking prophecies predicting future events. The rise and the fall of earthly kingdoms and the establishment of Christ's kingdom were events described, but the reality was still to come. And so Daniel was told, seal the book. Now that doesn't mean no one could read it, no one could find it, there was no way to know what was written in it. It meant that the fullness of it was, had, was still yet to be manifest. There was more to come. And in that sense, it was a sealed book. There's, there's more to be given before it can be fully comprehended or understood in its, in its, to its fullest extent. When we get to the Revelation, John is told the exact opposite. Do not seal up the words of this book. In other words, John, there's no more prophecy to be given, nothing else to happen in order to make sense of what has been said. What Daniel sealed up, John opened up. Because what Daniel looked forward to, John was living in his day. And we continue to be in the latter days. The implication of this being that the fullness of the revelation of God has been given. We are not waiting for more to come to make sense of what we have. We're not waiting for God to give another message to help us make sense of what John wrote. The completed canon means we have a completed revelation from God. So that when it comes to the Bible, it is in, that's what I mean, an open publication. It's, it's not sealed, it's fully revealed. It's completed. And in itself is a self-contained revelation from God. It's open for anyone to read and to compare and see the Scriptures bear witness to themselves. They bear their own self-testimony. You might imagine a book being written. And the plan was to expose or, or make a lot of hard-to-believe claims about a very public figure. And these claims 
are based on receiving some secret information that only the author has. Now maybe the author wanted to put out the first chapter of his book, sort of pre-publication to, to garner interest, which only made the claims but never made any effort to justify them with facts. Well, that author wouldn't want that material published to a broad audience because all that would do would be to open the door for accusations of libel and slander and misinformation because it's incomplete. There, there more has to be said if you're going to say these things. But once the full book is written, all the evidence and the facts are compiled and put, put out. The book is fully vindicated by its own contents. The author is protected from any accusations. You said this and you proved it with facts. We can't charge you with slander. In many ways, the Scriptures may have been viewed this way prior to the completion of the canon, or at least prior to the coming of Christ. We've got claims of, of rising and falling kingdoms. We've got the claims of a divine kingdom being set up on the earth. We've got claims of the worldwide worship of God. Those were bold claims to be made prior to their, their fulfillment. But now that Christ has come, now that the, the canon has been completed, now that we see all that God has said has been perfectly vindicated, the book is vindicated by its own contents. And the author is protected from any accusations of falsehood. Now beneath that reality and flowing out of it, we have several important doctrines with regard to Scripture, like the perspicuity of Scripture. And this refers to its clarity. It's not a, 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 a book full of dark and hidden things. It's not full of still-to-be-justified claims. Well, we have this, but now we're just waiting to see what it all means. Anyone can pick up a Bible and read it and learn and see how it clearly explains itself. Now, as our confession says, not all things are alike clear. Some things are going to take a little more work and a little more time. But that doesn't mean that the book is itself unclear. It is clear. It's perspicuous. This is closely related to another doctrine that we might refer to as the self-authentication of the Bible. Because we have a completed, openly published canon, we can see within the two covers of the Bible all that is needed to prove its own claims. In it, God says things, and then He proves them later by what He says or does. Daniel can say that a kingdom is coming that has no end. Christ can say, repent for the kingdom is at hand. It's here. It proves itself, you see. It's self-authenticating. Our, our, our post-enlightenment minds, we, we want more than that. Yeah, but what's, what, what's the presuppositions here? And, and No, we have a book. This is where we start. And it testifies to itself. It authenticates itself. All these lead to the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. Because it is the Word of God, because it is clear, because it is self-authenticating, it is in itself absolutely sufficient for life and godliness and even for its own vindication. It is sufficient. Now, does that exclude the writings of men that might help us to understand it? No. Do I, by necessity, need those to understand it? No. It is sufficient in itself. The Revelation is the final book of the Bible. If it describes a series of happenings still to be seen or experienced, in other words, we read it and we're still waiting, 
Well, that means that every generation, until it actually happens, is waiting to confirm. Well, can we believe this or not? If it's describing events that took place in the first century only, then I do need the works of Josephus to make sense of the revelation. But because the Scriptures is, or are sufficient, I don't need those things. I can see it clearly, and that's been true for every generation. The whole Bible is, is, is not left open-ended, and, and we're not waiting for more. Again, we're, we're, we have a completed, openly published, unsealed book. It is complete. With the conclusion of the Revelation, we have a closed canon. And in that closed canon, we can compare Scripture with Scripture, and we have a clear, self-authenticating, all-sufficient revelation from God. And that's not just us, that's anyone. Anyone who has a Bible can see for themselves. There's nothing hidden, nothing to hide. It's openly published. This means that for us who live in these to use the biblical language, these latter days. Those who live after the coming of Christ and the the fulfillment of so many of these things, we have a greater responsibility with the Word of God because we've been given a greater revelation. We're under a greater obligation to compare Scripture with Scripture and to learn what God has said to us. We will suffer greater condemnation if we ignore God's final Word. We should take God's Word very seriously and treasure it as an all-sufficient Word from the living God. Thirdly, the accessibility of the Word of God is shown in the universal invitation given to come and enjoy the promises contained in it. Verse 17, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Now commentators are varied as to exactly how to read these invitations. But if we focus just on verse 17, I think we see one general idea. As we saw last week, the Spirit-filled church gives the universal call to come to Christ. Then we have the one who hears. That would be an individual with ears to hear the Word of God. He too gives the invitation. And then we have those who are thirsty and those who desire to come. At this invitation, they then come. They're they're the ones being beckoned. So this here isn't Christ coming. It's those in need of a Savior coming at the call. So the invitation goes out. Come to the Lamb described in this book. Come to the one worthy to break its seals and open the scroll. Come to the one who's conquered the dragon and set up his kingdom. Come to the one who hears the prayers of his people and responds to them. Come to the one who will return someday to destroy death and dwell with his people forever. The invitation to come here is given, and it's given universally. Now we would not expect anyone to come without first considering the truths that are contained in the book. We would not want them to take our word for it, but to take God's word for it. And then hearing God's word, we would beckon them to come. Hearing God's word assumes they have access to it, which we've already seen they do. And so the invitation is given not to a select few, but to anyone. It's not given only to ignorant and untaught men. It's given to all men. Anyone who desires 
can pick up a copy of God's Word and knock themselves out, analyzing to the fullest of their capacities. God has no fear that somebody's going to find a problem in His Word. God is not afraid that He'll be found to be a liar. He's not afraid, well, if, if too many come and lay hold of the promises, well, I'm just not sure that I'll be able to fulfill that. No, He gives the invitation to all to come to taste and to see that He is good, that His Word is true. Something similar or related we see in, in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. He says, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby, that is by doing that, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. He says, in essence, come one, come all, anybody, everybody, obey the commandment and put me to the test. Test the promises and see if I do not prove myself faithful in all that I've said and all that I've promised. Now, we wouldn't feel as confident in the Word of God if it says, Come! But only people who don't have a college education. Or, or Come! But no one who's experienced in the sciences or, or history or geography and languages, th- those people probably shouldn't come. They, they might find something here. They might expose it for what it is. There's not an invitation to come to those who are unable to test the Word. Well, come, but only those who can't read. So that we can then tell you what it has to say and you just have to take our word for it. It never gives an invitation like that. It's always universal in Scriptures. Anyone who wants to come and test God's words to see if He is who He says He is, to see if these things are so, anyone can come. Anyone can do that. We see similar invitations to come and Put God to the test in this matter or in this way like Isaiah 55.1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Anyone, come into the market. Your pockets are empty? Come. Come and buy. I don't have any money. Come. It's, just, it's open. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. John seven thirty seven. on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. God's Word is so accessible that it contains within its pages the universal call to come. Come to God, hear His words. Come to Christ, receive His rest. Come to Jesus and see if He does not satisfy your soul. The Gospel goes forth with a command to all men everywhere to repent. And the exercise of faith is... An act of obedience to God. Not an earning of righteousness. But it is an obligation. Men are obligated to believe and to trust in God. And like Malachi, we see that God says, Come, repent and believe the gospel and see if I will not 
open up the windows of heaven and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. Put me to the test. He beckons men to come. The Bible never commands anyone to regenerate themselves or to even ask for regeneration. God commands all men everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. And in so doing and exercising that selfless outward look to God in Christ to be Savior to you, what you're doing is casting yourself on His promises. You're rolling yourself upon Christ. You're putting Him to the test. Will He hold me up? And He will. As long as the sun and the moon are in the sky, there remains a universal invitation to anyone who will to come, to search the Scriptures, to seek out the Lord Jesus Christ, make a catalog if you want to of all of the promises of God, empty out your pockets, and take freely. Anyone can come to this book, scour it, spend your life devouring it, see if God does not prove Himself to be faithful. Now, if you're not a Christian, this is your duty. God has put forth His own Son to take away wrath for any and all who will come and claim Him as their surety. You come saying, I'm a sinner. He's without blemish. My sins must be paid for. He has paid the penalty. I'm clinging to Him. He is my hope. That's your obligation. If you are a Christian, then think about how you interact with the Word of God. How often in a visit from the elders have you had to say, well, I've just been struggling to be consistent in my reading. I just haven't been reading my Bible like I should. Well, if that's you, if you say things like that, just think about the accessibility of God's Word. Any difficulty that you have in the area of consistency is not because you don't have access to God's Word or because He's made it difficult for you to get to it. The problem is with you, not Him. Any difficulty that you have comprehending the Word of God, it's not because God has put forth things so mysterious and mystifying that it's like a puzzle that you can't figure out. The problem is that you need more of a diet of the Scriptures, not less. The Word itself imparts understanding to the simple. Any difficulty that you have in the application of the Word of God, it's not because it's archaic or it's disconnected from our society or it's, it's just so far removed that it just can't be applicable anymore. No, it's, it's more than likely because you're not willing to be honest with just how relevant the application really is. How it really does describe you. Remember that it was in response to Augustine's cries to God as he saw the bondage that he was in in his own sins. He was crying out to God and he heard, Tola lege, tola lege, which means take up and read. Take up and read. Very often we're able to recognize the problem. We're just unwilling to take the medicine. It's take up and read. It's the life-giving Word of God. As we've seen, give me life according to your Word. Whatever, whatever the specifics might be with regard to the place of your soul and your growth, whatever areas you're, you're failing in, in growth in grace, or even areas of sin, 
Life comes through the Word. Why? Because it's the Word of God. This is how we interact with and commune with God. We learn who He is from His Word. But again, usually we say, well, I have this problem and this and this and I'm struggling here and here and here. I just don't have time for God's Word today. That's the very opposite of what we should do. We should be those who take up and read God's Word. The Apostle John began his first epistle describing the Lord Jesus in these words. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. God has made Himself so accessible, so freely offered Himself to men that He in the person of His Son took flesh and bones, and was heard and seen and touched and arrested and beaten and nailed to a cross, pierced for our transgressions. The bread and the cup of the Lord's table remind us of that tangible body and that actual blood that was shed for us. God in Christ has opened up the way of access to the Father through His death. And those who come to God through Christ, as the men discussed yesterday, when we come to God through Christ, we come to a place called peace. And the way that we see that peace has been most objectively obtained, the way that we see it most vividly in this life, is in the Lord's table where we are invited to come and to sit and to participate in the body and the blood of Jesus without condemnation. Peace has been, has been reached. Terms of peace have been offered and agreed upon in Christ. And so as the, the elements are distributed and you hold them in your hands and you eat and you drink, just meditate on that fact. This is, this is how near God has come to us.